Acts chapter 18. Acts the 18th chapter. Paul, we saw last time, was over in the city of Athens where he escaped to, waiting for his people to join up with him. And we see that he goes from there over to Corinth, still waiting for his uh, folks to, to arrive. And it begins after this, after these things, after his ministry to the, uh, to the people over in Athens and the, the uh, message that he preached, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. If we can pull our map back up, there it is. He's right on it. We, um, we of course, went over here. This is the area of Macedonia where he was at. Uh, Thessalonica, this is where he left uh, Timothy and Silas behind as he went on and got into a boat and sailed all the way over here and came over to Athens. From Athens, he goes right over there to Corinth. It's not very far. And he just uh, jumps on over there to Corinth. To uh, We don't really have a letter to the, to the church at, at uh, Athens, but we do have a letter to the church at Corinth. And two of them. And one of his most problematic churches. It is certainly a city that was incredibly entrenched in idolatry, heathenism. It was a tough place to minister. They certainly needed the gospel, but uh, it, was, it was quite a city to, to be going on. When I was present with you and in need, I'm sorry, wrong one. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. That's pretty neat, just the uh, emperor of the place. Yeah, I don't want any more Jews in here. Y'all go. <laughs> and they did. I guess uh, they were fearing what would happen if they didn't leave, and so they decided that it was in their best interest to go ahead and go. And he came to them. So because he was a, of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for, by occupation, they were tent makers. So what happened where it was, uh, they, they kind of were drawn together. You know, how, you know how it is that sometimes you're drawn together with people who have the same occupation that you do or same interest that you do? Well, it's kind of what happened here. I have two people who are tent makers, and it didn't take long until, you know, they could figure out that each other were tent makers, maybe the language they used, maybe uh, the way their calluses were, and their, I don't know, whatever it was, they were able to tell that they were tent makers. And to uh, figure those kind of things out, whatever it is that you are good at, whatever it is that you are part of, you can pretty much tell someone is involved with it. If you're into baseball, you can pretty much tell another baseball player. If you're into football, you can tell another football player. I like running. I can pretty much pick a runner out of anywhere. And uh, you just can kind of tell these these things are, are going on. And whatever it is, they were drawn to each other. And so now Paul, when he was over in Athens, what did he do in Athens? We went over this, uh, spent a little bit of time on it last time. He did, uh, outside of preaching the gospel, he did nothing. And so much so that the people thought he was a, uh, a loafer. They called him that. When they came on it, they called him a babbler. The word that they use there for babbler is a word that they use for someone who just goes around listening, catching up on ideas, and then goes off and tries to sell them as his own. He's a loafer. He's not really uh, industrious. He doesn't really have his own occupation. So obviously he was not working. In Athens, he just was kind of hanging out and uh, finding places to discuss this. And uh, so we saw, saw he was discussing it sometime. He would go in there on the Sabbath and they would have the discourse. But in between, he's just kind of hanging out. So he comes on over here to, to Corinth. And I, I guess, you know, Paul has the same limitation that most of us do. If you hang out in the city for a few weeks, what happens? If you go on vacation for two weeks and you decide to take an extra two weeks, what might you need money. You need money. You need money. You, you run out of money after a while. 
Now, they didn't have credit cards and such things like that. You had what money you uh, that came with you. Uh, and I guess, you know, he went off in there with a certain amount of money, paid for the, the, the boat to get on over. He has to buy food. He has to uh, you know, get a room, some things like that. So um, he, he had to spend some money. And when he comes over here to Corinth, apparently he's kind of out of money. And no one has come along to help him out yet. So it says that uh, he uh, connected with his tent makers. And it says in verse 4, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. That is a horrible translation. I don't know who was thinking about this when they translated it. If you go to the King James, it is just as bad, and there are other translations that are equally as bad as this one. What it looks like is that when Silas and Timothy comes to, from Macedonia, Paul finally gets compelled by the Spirit to preach the gospel. <laughs> and that's how he's over there loafing around, just not really doing a whole lot. And then when his buddies come, oh, I better get preaching the gospel here. How many of you think that's Paul? That's not Paul. That's not the kind of guy that, that he is. And um, I, I went back in here and I looked at the Greek in this thing, and I don't know where they came up with this translation. I, I just don't know what it is that they pulled from. The word spirit is certainly there, but there are some other things in there that would compel you to not translate it that way. So what I did was um, I pulled this out for you in a couple other translations. Uh, one is uh, one that I use on the Facebook a lot. It's, a, it's kind of a neat translation. It's... Uh, the New Living Translation. Anyone have, uh, ever have a copy of that at home? It is a very interesting translation. I, I like some of the ways that they come about it. It is not the New Living Bible. All right, don't confuse the two. The New Living Bible, or the Living Bible, is a paraphrase like the message. The New Living Translation is a translation. That's why they put translation in the name. It reads like this. And after Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul spent all of his time preaching the word. He testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Now it changes a little bit. Before this, when was he spending time preaching the word? On the Sabbath. Now that they come down, he's preaching the word all the time. Something changes when these guys come down. In, um, in Weiss' translation, Then when both Silas and Timothy had come down from Macedonia, Paul was wholly occupied with and absorbed in the word, solemnly affirming to the Jews that the Christ Messiah is Jesus. So we see that when they arrive, that something changes for Paul, and he goes from preaching or re, uh, reasoning with them on the Sabbath to full-time going after it. So here's, if we go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9. And when I was present with you and in need. When Paul comes to Corinth, he is in need. What's that mean? He needs money. He says, I was a burden to no one. How is it that you can be in need and be a burden to no one? You got a job, <laughs> right? That's how you can be in need and but not be a burden to anyone. You get a job. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied, and in everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. What he's telling you here is up until they came, I was, I was working. I was a tent maker. I was with Priscilla and Aquila. We were making tents. When they came... They brought with them an offering from Macedonia. And these folks chipped in so that Paul would, did not have to focus on making tents anymore. He could just focus on preaching the gospel. And so that is what changed for Paul. So uh, in verse 5, it seems Paul was pressured by the need for money. 
He was pressured by the need for money. How many of you have ever felt pressured for the need for money? We can attest to that. We can, this is not saying that Paul was some flesh guy. He just he needed money. We've been in that spot. When you're in that spot, you need money. You don't just, uh, well, so what? We don't need to pay our rent, pay our electric. We don't need to buy food. No, you, you need to find a way to, to get some money. So Paul was feeling the pressure when he came in there because the folks still had not come on by. And so he uh, reasoned on the Sabbath, but the other days he made tents. When Silas and Timothy came, they brought an offering. And that's what helped them out. Now, here are the senders. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 15, Philippian is, Philippi is in where? Macedonia. Macedonia. We use the same terminology he says. When Paul and Silas came from where? Macedonia. When he had the Macedonian call, what was the first place that he went to? Philippi. Philippi. He goes over to Philippi. And so here's the Philippians chapter 4, verse 15. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, where did he go when he departed from Macedonia? He went to Athens. From Athens, he went to Corinth, where he was in need. When I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Now that I... Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Here in First uh, Thessalonians three and verse six, but now that Timothy has come to you, come to us from you, and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we are comforted concerning you by the faith. So Timothy came from the Thessalonians as well as he came from the Philippians. And so there was an offering put in here from the folks in Macedonia. That's what he says when, and before when they came from Macedonia. He brought offerings from these, these places. It seemed like the Philippians were the big contributors, though. Now, he was able to be completely absorbed in preaching the gospel and not so much uh, absorbed by the making of tents. And so that's what he gets into with, with his part. So when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is Christ. Well, that's not quite it. He, was, uh, he left from making tents to being able to preach the gospel all, t- all the time. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. So now he's in there full time. And so they're not just getting it on the Sabbath day, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, all the other days. He's in there. He's uh, compelling with them. And eventually it got to be too much. They got the Jews, poor Jews got on overload. And they just rejected the whole thing, and they came after him. And so he just shook the dust off of, from him, and he didn't leave the city, but he left that area where they were, were at. He said, for now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house. Didn't say he went into a new city. He departed from there, entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. <laughs> well, that's convenient, almost like a parsonage. <laughs> but he worshiped God. He's right next door to the synagogue. And Paul could stay there and then just walk over to the, to the synagogue if he wanted to go back in there and to, to minister. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. So he's right next door to, this, to the synagogue. There's a ruler of the synagogue. And Paul's right next door to him. So they have a lot of interaction. And eventually he couldn't withstand the reasonings and the preaching of Paul. And so he 
He got born again, he and all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. So see, we have not left the city of Corinth. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Now this is going to seem kind of odd because we haven't quite seen what the Lord is speaking about here. But you can tell what's going on because the Lord's speaking to him. How many of y'all know the Lord does not speak a word that you don't need? So how many of you wanted him to speak a word that you didn't get yet? <laughs> yeah, there might be that, but he's not going to speak a word you don't need. Look at what he says. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. If you look up in the Williams in this, he likes to capture the meaning of the verbs in particular. He says, stop being afraid. Which means that Paul was in the state of being afraid. At that moment, and God says to him, stop it. Whatever was going on in this city was causing fear to rise up. Now, you know, Paul is not a timid guy. He's been beaten. He's been stoned. He's all the things that have come against him. Whatever is going on here in this city, it's pushing him to become timid. To become afraid. And the Lord spoke to him in the night by a vision. He didn't just speak this in a still, quiet voice coming up on the inside of him. He didn't just reveal the word of God to, that God spoke to Joshua. Don't be afraid. He didn't do that. In a vision at night. He saw, now, if you are at night and you are sleeping, what do you have? A dream. What does it say Paul had? A vision, which means he was awake. If you are awake at nighttime, something is going on. How many of you have ever been awake at nighttime? Is there not a cause for that? Maybe there's a problem that's going on. There's a concern that you've got. A nasty storm will keep some people up. Some kind of a situation is going on, and it's, keep, and it's what's keeping him up. And God, in a vision at nighttime, spoke to him and said, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. Wouldn't you take from this that Paul was thinking about hushing, about not speaking anymore? That somehow in preaching the message at Corinth, he is facing a lot of opposition. People are coming against him. Probably people outside the church, probably people inside the church. Both. He's getting it from both. He's getting Jews. He's getting Gentiles. People are coming. Now, people are getting born again, but people are coming against him for preaching this message. And he's getting discouraged. And the Lord says to him, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you. Now, how many of y'all know Paul knows God's with him? You think you really have to remind Paul that God's with him? What he's reminding him of is this. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Now, you keep this in mind. I am with you. Wherever it is that you go, I am with you. You know that, but you just keep that in mind. Don't stop speaking. Don't be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. Paul may be wondering that. He might be up there with, a, with uh, Elijah. I'm the only one. <laughs> now, he knows he's not the only one because he's got Silas and he's got Timothy. And they're tough p- people, too. You're looking at Paul is not by himself here. Silas is an incredibly tough person. Timothy is an incredibly tough person. He has not given in on any of the pressure that is going on. Timothy and Silas stayed in the city that, that uh, beat up on Paul. And they, they stayed in that city to keep on, the, keep on working the gospel, preaching the gospel to people. 
these are not slouches. And you get those two teamed up with Paul when they're there at nighttime. How many of y'all know they're encouraging each other? They're pushing each other on. This is, it's, it's like a locker room and a football team. You know, you come in that locker room, you get encouraged. You go back out there after halftime and, you know, beat the tar out of that other team. Just get on out there and that's what they do. They encourage you. That's what's going on. They get in there. It's like a locker room. All right, we've got to get out there tomorrow. We're going to get out there. They're, they're encouraging each other. And it still is overwhelming to Paul. That tells you how bad it is in the city. Again, this city has a whole lot of idolatry, a whole lot of sin. You think you see sin around in here? There's sin all over the place over there. And he's facing this every single day. And he's going out there with the gospel, but the appeal of the sin is great. And he's probably having a hard time pulling some people out of the sin into the gospel. I mean, I've got to give this stuff up. Yeah, give that stuff up. And, oh, I don't know if I want to give that stuff up. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Now, this word here for hurt, uh, that's kind of a poor translation. No one will hurt you. Oh, did poor little Paul get hurt? You know, that, that's not what this word is talking about. This word is um, a little stronger than that. I put the definition in, it just comes from strong. There's nothing real real fancy. But I went and followed this word through the gospel. I pulled out the occurrences that this has. And in Acts chapter 7, verse 6, but God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in the foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. The word there for oppress is the same word that is used for Paul to hurt. When it talks about the Egyptians oppressing them, do you think the Egyptians hurt them? They beat them. They whipped them. They overworked them. They killed their kids. This, is, this was not just, oh, Paul got hurt. This is not what this word is talking about. This is the same word used for oppressed. In uh, verse 19, same chapter, this man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so they might not live. The word therefore oppressed is the same word. And it's talking about it in the same sentence. The kind of oppression we're talking about is they made them expose their babies so that they may not live. That's some serious oppression, don't you think? In uh, verse 1 of chapter 12, how about that time Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church? You know what that meant? People died. And Peter was about to die. Remember, it's going over that one. But the unbelieving, in verse 2 of chapter 14, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. They stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds. Now, when it talks about this, we remember we went over this, this part. When he poisoned their minds, when it stirred them up against the Gentiles, did they just, uh, you know, did they just throw some apples at them? No, it was some serious rioting that was going on, some serious beatings that, that took place. In 1 Peter 3 and verse 13, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? There it's translated harm again. But who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? I want you to see this word is not used of things that just uh, casually you got hurt. You didn't just fall down and scuff your knee. We're talking some serious stuff. What the Lord is saying is, Paul, no one is going to attack you and cause any kind of serious damage to you. 
It's not going to happen. He's telling them. He's not saying, I'm not going to let it happen. He's saying, it will not happen. That's what he's saying. So he says, you be strong. Get up there. Don't be silent. Don't be afraid. You go on. I am telling you. This is what's going on. So, verse 11, and he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So in this place that nearly discouraged Paul from preaching the gospel, it says that he stayed there another year and a half in Corinth. That's a long time. He hasn't stayed there that long in most times, most places. He stayed there a long time. God wanted him to stay there and to do some things, and uh, that church certainly needed some help. They needed Paul to, to help them out. And even, even so afterwards, he's still writing them some letters and correcting some major issues that they had going on. So Paul went through much to bring the word of God to this city and was attacked both without and within. Those who were unsaved and those who were saved. Now, the, if, if you go into the book of Corinth, or the letter to, uh, that Paul writes to the Corinthians, you're going to find some accusations that they made concerning Paul. We wanted to read some of these here for you. Uh, the first one was in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 2. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intended to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. One of the things, and he's writing this church not to the unbelievers, not to the Jews who, who oppose him. He is writing this to the church at Corinth. These are the people that are supposed to be on his team, on his side. And the first thing is, he says, you think that we walk according to the flesh. That's an accusation they made. Paul, he's, he's just a flesh walker. He may say these things, but that's just his flesh talking. That's not the spirit of God. And verse 10 of chapter 10 in 2 Corinthians for his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. So they say he's powerful when he writes, but when he's in person, he's not much. And he was there for a while. He was there for a year and six months after the Lord gave him that word, after enough things had gone on that he was discouraged after all that. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 20, avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift, which is administered by us, providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have often proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent because of the great confidence that we have in you. If anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you, or if our brethren are inquired about that the messengers of the church, the glory of Christ. So he's talking about this lavish gift. They questioned the things that were going on with the gift. They thought he was just in the ministry for the money. Is basically what they were, they were getting at here. In Second um, Corinthians eleven, seven and eight, did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted? Because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge. I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. So he's saying, you think I'm in this for the money? I preached the gospel to you and you guys didn't put up a dime. Other people came along and helped that out. I was in there working, doing his own thing. Then when, the, when they came with the offering, then he was able to, to work off of, of that and not have to work making the tents. So they didn't put a dime out to help him out. 
Apparently, that's for the whole time he was there. The year and a half plus whatever other time he was there, they didn't do anything. In Second Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 1, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of condemnation to you or letters of condemnation from you? They were accusing him of not being one of the original apostles. You know, he's, he's not authentic. He's not a real apostle. He didn't follow around with Jesus. He came on after the fact. Second Corinthians 12 and verse 11, I have become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended, commended by you. For in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance and signs and wonders and mighty indeed. He's saying basically this. I don't lack any of the credentials that these other guys have. And I demonstrated all that in you. When I was there, you saw miracles, you saw signs, you saw wonders, you saw the Spirit of God, you saw stuff happen. And you have no reason to doubt that. It goes on in Second Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 8. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for, our, for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed. They called him boastful. They called him arrogant. They called him proud. And he had to defend himself on that as well. So these are some of the accusations they made. Second Corinthians 10, verse 15. Not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other man's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere. Oh, one more. Second Corinthians 12, verse 16. But be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. So they accused him of being deceitful, crafty, or cunning. That, that you didn't get us on the, on the word of God. You were crafty. You were cunning. You got us to fall for this thing. No, he didn't. He came in there with the gospel and taught them. So these accusations came from the church that he put all this time into. From the church that he didn't charge a dime to. He took, other people supported him being there so he could bring the gospel to it. From the church that he kept having troubles with, problems with, having to keep correcting him in letters, having to even send him a letter that he, he said at one time I regretted sending. So we have two of the letters where apparently were more. Where do we leave off at in, uh, in Acts? Verse 12. Now, when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Now, they're bringing him to the Roman proconsul. The Roman proconsul has nothing to do with the law of the word of God. When they say, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law, what they are saying is contrary to Roman law. Now, this guy that they brought to, I don't know if you know too much history on him. You can look him up on the Internet and find some interesting things about this guy. This guy was some kind of a lawyer. He knew the law. Here's the thing, though. He knew the Roman law. He knew the Roman law inside and out. And if you want to talk about a law that was good, the Roman law stood for over a thousand years. That's a good law. He knew the Roman law. There is no law in the Roman law that compels you to worship or not worship any God. As far as the Roman law is concerned, it doesn't matter. 
you may worship any God that you want to according to the Roman law. This guy, his position was to uphold the Roman law. If you want a um, comparison to that today, we have a constitution. How many things have you heard are unconstitutional that you cannot even find in there? There's a difference between the law that was written and the law that is trying to be applied. What happened in Rome was the Caesars came up and demanded worship of them. That is not Roman law. That was Caesar's law. The proconsul knows my job is to uphold the Roman law, not Caesar's. That would eventually get him in trouble with the Caesar, and he will eventually die for it. He will be killed because he stood on this principle that he was to uphold the Roman law. And the guy knew Roman law really, really well. And he ran into, got into a run-in with Caesar on, these, on some of these issues where he was going to uphold what the Roman law said and went against Caesar. And Caesar had him killed. But that's, uh, that's just something that they did. So here you have the Jews who are going to bring Paul to the Romans. What do the Jews think about the Romans? They don't like them. They are not far from a total revolt against the Romans. They're going to just completely uprise, uh, up, uh, rise up against them and rebel. They do not like the Romans. They don't like the Romans' presence in their cities, in their country. They don't like them at all. But in order to get rid of Paul, they will use them. Just as the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians used the Romans to get rid of Jesus, these folks are going to use the Romans to get rid of Paul. This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Paul, is all, he stood up. He is ready to defend himself. He's about ready to say, look, I am a Roman. I know Roman law. I know uh, we're not doing anything against. He's about to say whatever it is he's going to say. He's going to say something along those lines. He's opening his mouth. He's getting ready to speak. You can kind of hear him. Take a deep breath and get ready to speak. And before he can get a word out, Galileo said to the Jews, he's, the, he's not even looking at Paul. He's looking over there to the Jews. If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. <laughs> he's not very happy with them either. If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But their opening statement is, he is compelling them to worship contrary to the Roman law. They don't come up with any, anything about wrongdoing, that he robbed a bank, that he defaced a statue, Anything like that. Any wicked crimes. No, they, they, Their opening statement, this is all they have. This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. He knows the law. He knows this is bogus. This is not right. I said, we got to know the, you, you ought to know the law. We, how many times have we, I, I told you this all the time. Don't let the media into your house. 
You've heard me say that all the time. Don't let the media into your house because the media comes in about things. And even though they know a situation, they present it as such that they completely distort it. And you come out with an idea that is wrong. And if you know how things go, you, you wouldn't. But most of us, you, our government is so big and there's so many regulations, so many. We don't know them all. We don't know them all. If you were, I don't know if you, if you heard about this. I heard about this. I heard some of the things that went on. But then I also heard what the situation was supposed to be. And it was uh, much more settled for me. But there was an incident where the um, person who was in charge of the IRS, who resigned because of the conflict, she was called before the Senate hearing again. Did you hear about this? This is the second time. Not the first time. It pretty much went the same way as the first time. But she was called before them a second time. And Daryl Issa was running the meeting on this one. And so the order of the meetings, the way these things go, is very clear. They all open up and all the people on the panel may ask or may make statements about what's going on. You can make any statement that you want. And ISA, as the chair, would recognize anyone and they make their statement and they recognize the next one, they make their statement. After everyone is done making the statements, they go on into questioning. So after all the statements were done, he went into questioning, and he questioned this woman, and you know what her answers were. He asked her, I think, seven questions, and her answers were each time, on the advice of my attorney, I refused to answer on the grounds that it might incriminate me. And after seven questions, and she gave the same answer for each one, he dismissed the hearing, because according to the hearing's procedure, you have statements, you have questions, after questions, you dismiss so one particular senator decided to wait until after the questions and after the dismissal. And then he said, I want to ask a question. Well, it had already been dismissed. But Daryl Isis said, go ahead and ask your question. So he opened it back up again. And this man never asked a question. He was making a statement. And it, if you heard him, it's just, it, was, it was a crazy statement. And he was getting very emotional about it. And, uh, and Daryl Issa shut it down. No, statements were before. This was question. You don't have a question. And so he shut off his microphone <laughs> because he kept going on to, to he's out of order. Mm-hmm. Now, Daryl Issa was one who was who himself, if you ever heard the, the discourse, it was embarrassing if you were uh, Barney, uh, what's his name, Barney, um, Barney, Barney, yeah, he was, oh, with was Elijah Cummings? Oh, for this, this hearing, yeah. But it was Daryl Issa who was speaking when Barney Frank was up. And if you heard the discourse, you would have thought you were in kindergarten the way Barney Frank was talking. It was hard. I'm so glad he's out of the Senate. He's just, uh, he was awful. But, uh, and and Daryl Issa was very calm and said, look, this is what the procedure is. And we just remind him. And, the, and the, if you ever heard it, if you didn't, oh, I'll tell you what, it's just, it makes a sad thing. But anyway, uh, after the end of this hearing, all the media did, if you let him into your house, all the media did was focus on Daryl Issa and how he shut down someone from speaking and totally didn't cover the fact that the head of the IRS refuses to answer questions to how she used her organization to abuse United States citizens. All it became about was Daryl Issa shut the microphone off of Cummings. And Cummings probably had that as his intention. Let's get the focus off of the IRS and let's get it on to Daryl Issa. And it worked with the media. They all focused on him. And that. But if you knew the law and you knew the procedure, you know, there was no, no foul, no, no wrongdoing. If you don't like the procedure, that's one thing. Have the procedure. But that's the procedure. 
That's the, and they all know the procedure. They all know what's supposed to go on. If you bring them into your room and you listen to the report, then you think, oh, Daryl, what's, what, what's, what's he doing? He shouldn't be out. And you get real mad at him. And you totally lost focus of what was going on. What you see here at Acts chapter 18 is a proconsul who never loses focus. His focus is on the law. He knows the law. And when these guys tried to distract and bring something, he says, you know what? If you brought this up that he did some kind of wrong or you're some kind of a criminal, he did something like that, I'd put up with you guys. Doesn't sound like he likes them a whole lot. But I would put up with you guys. But he goes on and says this. If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law. <laughs> See, he knows the difference. He is not here to support the Jewish law. He is not here to support any other law except the Roman law. That's his job. It's nice to find a guy who knows what his job is and focuses on it. And he does. Look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. He realized, I'm not called into that realm. I know Roman law. I don't know Jewish law. I can't judge Jewish law. I'm not supposed to judge Jewish law, and you're wasting my time bringing it here. Now get out of here. You go deal with this in your own, their own spot. So they can't use Rome to get rid of. Now up till now, they tried to discredit Paul, and it didn't work. They tried to threaten his life. Paul had actually had his life threatened, and that didn't work. So they're running out of ideas here. How do we stop Paul from what's going on? And so they bring him before Galileo. And they try to use the proconsul. They try to use Rome for that. And, uh, well, that didn't work out so well as so well for them at all. I heard it said that the state has no business setting a religious, settling a religious dispute only in keeping the disputers safe. Oh, that's pretty good. The state has no business settling a religious dispute only in keeping the disputers safe. That is the role of the state. The role of the state is not to settle dis- to religious disputes, but is the state now trying to settle religious disputes? Are they not trying to tell which group should be tolerant and which groups you should not be tolerant of? What you should believe, what you should not believe. The IRS was asking people, what is the content of your prayers? Yeah, they kind of stepped over. But this is a guy who knows where he's supposed to be, and he does it. It's kind of nice to to see that coming out of somebody. So he knows the law, and he dismisses the case. The case never sees the light of day. It'd be nice if we had judges that would do this. Anybody think of back at McDonald's? Coffee was hot. That case should have been dismissed. should not have gone anywhere, but it did, and McDonald's had to pay, and so other companies have to put all this stuff on their, their boxes now to, to make sure that yeah, this, is, uh, this is what they do. And he drove them from the judgment seat. He didn't just say, you know, you all got to get out of here. He drove them from it. Now, he, it's not him personally. You don't get a proconsul to go out there and to, to mess with. He gets the, the Roman soldiers that are, get them out of my courtroom, and I want you to do it forcibly. Get them out of here. Drive them. And they, they, you don't have to tell a Roman soldier that twice. They come on out. And you cannot go against the Roman soldier or they would kill you. So they drove them out. 
got them out of the judgment seat. But that wasn't it for them. They decided they could do uh, a little bit more. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Galileo took no notice of these things. <laughs> He's saying, y'all, y'all are trying to be bad to get me to jump in. I'm not jumping in. You are not going to do this thing to get me to go. I'm not taking the bait. And so he, he saw the whole thing. They did it right in front. It's kind of, you know, they're, they're doing this thing. They're looking back. You see what we're doing? You see, you better get involved because we're going to. And he's, he's, he's not even messing with them. He took no notice of these things. He just went on. And so uh, that was his time over there in, in Corinth. And uh, from that, this is, this is where we get the letters, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and, of course, the 1A that was written as well that we don't uh, apparently have. Now, it says that Paul still remained a good while, and then he took leave of them, and he uh, set sail for, for Syria, and we're not going to get into all that part of it here. But you can see that Corinth was a tough spot, so much so that he was discouraged, that God had to come and speak to him, not just in a dream, not just from the word, not in his spirit, but in a nighttime vision, the spirit, the God appeared, the Lord appeared to him. And said to him, Paul, stop being afraid. Now, Brother Hagin used to always tell us that the uh, level of the revelation is always conditional on the type of opposition that you're going to get. He said it much better than that, but I don't remember exactly how he said it. That if you, you have a, he's, he would tell us, he said, always, I always love it when I get the still small voice that comes up on the inside. Because that means I'm not going to face much. They're not going to face a whole lot of opposition. It's still a small voice. You know, you just kind of follow it and you go, uh, you know, uh, dream. Oh, you're going to face a little more vision. Uh, it's, it's going to be a whole lot more. More opposition is coming because the greater the revelation, the greater the opposition. The greater the revelation, the greater the opposition you'll face. Don't ask for angels to show up in your room and talk to you at nighttime because that means you are in store for one tough ride. And you don't want that. You don't want that still small voice? Good, good. Still small voice? All right, it's not going to be so bad. He had a vision in the nighttime. Kept, he was up awake at night. Vision comes, and he stays there for a while longer. You know it had to be tough what he was facing because he needed a vision to carry him out. Keep, him, keep going on there. We put this in your outline for you. There are people you will go through a whole lot of stuff for. As did Jesus, Paul, and others. As they turned their back on them or made accusations, so too will they of you. Don't be discouraged. Just think of Paul over here in Corinth. Most of his letters, he's writing to them, handling problems. More problems are handled with Corinth, I think, than any other city I can think of. And he spent a long time there. It can be easy to be discouraged. But people got born again. The most vile city of that day, a church was started. And they faced a lot of opposition. They faced a lot of problems. But still, a church was going. If Paul could fight off discouragement, so can we. We've got to make sure that we do. Father, we thank you for the help that you give us. We know that whatever it is we do for you, whatever ministry we have in our families, whatever ministry we have with the heathen that are around us in our neighborhood, the people at work, Father, you have called us to be lights wherever it is that we go. Some places we go be lights for, 
they will come after us. There will be pressure. Father, we thank you. We can take the word that Paul has here. Do not be afraid. Or basically stop being afraid. But to keep on speaking. For you are with us. We thank you, Father, for that word spoken to us all through the word of God. That you never leave us or forsake us. That your spirit will always go with us. We thank you for it. Help us to have that confidence to know. Wherever we go, we go with you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.